Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Only keep it. I'm Ira Madison the third. Are we back? Oh, I'm Luke. Yeah. <laughs> Are <Well>. we back? <laughs> We're here physically. Are we here all emotionally and mentally? I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll take I'll take my sadness elsewhere. Okay. That's a huge burden to put on me to figure that out right now, right at the top of the show. Yeah, I'm right. Louis Fertel. I'm Aida Osman, <laughs> I think. Hello. Uh well. Hi, my log cabin boys. How are we doing today? <laughs> oh, wow. I, I, I haven't devoted any brain space to learning that Catherine McPhee donated to the Republican Party. And it shouldn't mean anything to me because she is an American Idol runner-up who just got one NBC show one time. But she has played so hard to the gays on that goddamn Twitter that it is insulting. All right. Tell me what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, well, so... Have you heard of Catherine McPhee? Yes, yes. We're here for that. Okay. Yes, yes. Smash, American Idol, and also Waitress. Waitress on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, <laughs> what's important to note about her American Idol run was there was a time when any lady singer with brown hair had to sing Black Horse in the Cherry Tree by K.T. Tunstall, <laughs> and she was one of those people. Okay. woo <laughs> It came out this week that this woman who has been cultivating a gay fan base to the likes that I have not seen since um, Nick Jonas was near naked on every um, gay magazine cover. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, truly, like, she released a video once that had her looking at her vanity and turning around to the camera and saying, Hi, my gay boys. <laughs> uh, but also, she just kept going. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, she references every gay-centric meme on her Twitter. Mm-hmm. She's always popping in. With, I mean, like, it, it's planned. Like, there's some gay intern mastermind running the whole yeah. operation. I'm sure it's not entirely she don't, She don't her tweet brain. herself. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I, I doubt she even would see most of these tweets, you know? Yeah. Because it was just, like, the way that Catherine McPhee would constantly, like, oh, a meme is happening online. Like, the way that she would instantly sort of have a response, it's like, bitch, ain't you busy? <laughs> right. Yeah, are you, like, trying to write a packet for late night? What's going on? Yeah. Right. Should should you be giving David Foster a sponge bath, that old <laughs> man you married? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, so she's not being brought up because okay. there's been a recent fall from grace, right? This is yeah. So this week, oh, this no. week, someone shared screenshots because uh, you know you can look up people's political donations. Oof. She has been donating money to Republicans, and not just to Republicans. She was <laughs> donating to this website, RedWin.com, which gives you a list of every Republican running for office and different races that you can participate in. And she's also a registered Republican in California. Uh, Okay. I mean, that makes a lot of sense now, now that we talk about it. (laughs) I mean, it just points to what now feels like the most callous stream of tweets in memory. I mean, to just pedal out to the gays like that and then 
directly, directly contradict that quote unquote love for <laughs> with this bullshit is just really surprising. And yeah. I was, I have to say, from my limited experience with the show Smash, a Team Karen fan, because I felt that Karen was maligned for having natural star charisma, whereas mm-hmm. Megan Hilty was just like all talent, you know? And yeah. I wanted to be like the asshole on the side of natural X Factor, but no longer. <laughs> Listen, I'm not going to lie to kick it, you know? I liked Catherine McPhee. I liked her in Smash as well. Um, so, you know, I, I, was, I was shocked. I was shocked, to be honest. People kept trying to be like, of course, she's married to David Foster. Like, of course she was a Republican. And I'm like, yes, in my brain, I should be thinking also David Foster's a Republican, too. I mean, he did run over Ben Vereen. But... <laughs> David Fo- that Republicans too. <laughs> yeah, right. Da- David David Foster worked with like hella Negroes. You know, <laughs> I don't know. It seemed like he was an asshole, but down. Anyway, I guess not. Right. So, and by the way, I guess now I'm a Taylor Hicks fan, which is well, another wild turn. He's of a Republican too. God, don't Elliot, you, remember- you mean? Or, <laughs> yes. Well, not Republican, but do you recall that he performed at the Republican National Convention? Oh, correct. Once. Yes. And then, and then he w- said that he wanted to be equal opportunity, and he was awaiting an invite to also perform at the DNC. I was like, I, is this how you're trying to get press, Joy Vila? Yeah. <laughs> also, that's a very um, Republicans buy sneakers, too, type response. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> wow, shocking. The amount of white people that are secretly Republican. How shocked are we? I know. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to even have to like explain her this to people. That's, that season, that whole season is a wash. Lewis, who can we stand from that season of American Idol now? Wait, Elliot Yamin is that season, right? Mm. Do we have to do that? Yeah. We can. Uh, listen, Elliot Yamin, love that voice. Oh, yeah. By the way, oh, wait, maybe I'm a Mandiza stand. Did you ever consider that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. These are good choices. Yeah, not Bucky Cuffington. This is not a pro-Bucky Cuffington <laughs> podcast. I mean to say that. Yeah. Well, we have a very exciting episode today. We have two guests joining mm-hmm. us. First, we're going to talk to David Chang, restaurateur and chef celebrity, Uh-huh. I guess. Yeah, I think in that order, okay. definitely. Yeah. And I get to be uh, there the- for both of the interviews today. Very, It's a rarity. It's a rarity. The streets have been... Waiting. I I, know. I was surprised people noticed. I'm like, girl, I just ask questions. <laughs> like, that's not, you missed that. You were surprised people noticed when it was just Ira and yeah. Lewis asking questions, and, and, and the <laughs> third person on the show was gone. <laughs> And for months at a time, yeah. Our listeners are perceptive, Aida. <laughs> ears, ears, they have them. Shocked. Shocked. <laughs> Uh, we will also be joined by Zachary Quinto Woo! making a return appearance to Keep It. What was he here for last time? And I was not here for the last time he was here. Yeah. Last time he was here when Boys in the Band was hitting Broadway. Mm. And now he's here to talk about the film. Full circle. Yeah. That's history. <laughs> I bet you're going to bring up Heroes, a show I've not seen, though I literally am so familiar with the rest of his catalog, so I feel bad about that. All right. Well, keep feeling bad. Okay. I feel bad for having watched Heroes. <laughs> what? <laughs> this bastard. That's the first season. It's awful. Oh, my God. Remember Hayden Panettiere? Yeah. <laughs> Remember her? I do. <laughs> yeah. Nashville, baby. Anyway. Uh, also, Scream 4. Don't forget. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, classic. R.I.P. Kirby. She'd better be in five. <laughs> um, but before we get on with the show... Um, I would be remiss not to bring up the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg this weekend and the um, 
hellscape that it has plunged us into mm-hmm. this week uh, watching um, the new fucked the, as I call it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> w- watching every rat scurry above the um, SS GOP mm-hmm. uh, so they can get uh, a nominee onto the court a conservative nominee um, and replace her seat. I mean, is the woman on money yet? She's the one person where, like, culturally, uh, comedically, it became kind of a cliche to be obsessed with her and, you know, mm-hmm. girl boss it up. But it's also, like, w- just an unprecedented figure in human history. I mean, it's just, in in a way, like, I don't even think I've spent enough time with it. She's, I said on uh, Twitter, which sounded so kind of glib of me, but, like, it's really a Wikipedia that is amazing from start to end. Truly, just read it. I, <laughs> yeah. And, by, and I, mm. I, I say this like, I love Wikipedia. I think more people should go to it. <laughs> I almost am anti-museums and pro-Wikipedia. Like, I'm like, I'm almost far right in this way. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can you can gain a lot of information on her really quickly, and you don't even have to watch that Felicity Jones movie, so do it. <laughs> yes, because On the Basis of Sex is a bad movie. Indeed, yes. <laughs> My favorite thing about her, I had to go back, of course, and watch the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary on Hulu and I we spend so much time around comedians and people who are personalities trying to be funny I forgot the intensity of a sober person and the intentionality of someone who is serious and cares about philosophical things and wants wants you to understand that you know comedy is not the they're not trying to get a joke off all the time <laughs> and um, have my own personal necklaces that I now call dissenting callers so we I, 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 I love that <laughs> woman it's very it's <laughs> I heard you alright yeah <laughs> Very fortunate, very fortunate um, to have had her as a role model in my life. And, you know, I don't even want to get mad at all the white feminists. Today's not a day for that for me. But I mean, you could get mad at white feminists any time of the day, you know? I mean, it is my general state of being. That's my default mode is I'm mad at a white feminist. I mean, you you mean we're we're able to talk about nuance on the show, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's there is the idea that Lewis brought up before, you know, the girl bossing was a unfortunate time in mixing of um, political discourse and, like, um, nonsense, you know? I mean, like, I'm sure it stemmed from the notorious RBG, you know, um, meme that first started, and then it became a book, and then it became T-shirts and everything, you know? And it's just sort of this, like, cult of personality around her that could become exhausting. um, And by the way, again, it's like, there should be some of that. There should be some of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. There should be some of that, but I I would also say that, like, since we're in hell, a lot of us (laughs) bought into that in a way that I specifically Mm -hmm. remember, like, um, calls for, like, our... BG to retire before, right? Um, and yeah. you, you know, you were you were you were met with um, responses that were like, "This is sexist, this is ageist, etc." But then I'm also like, the woman beat cancer twice and also like fell down and broke her ribs, you know. <laughs> so <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> after the third after the third hospital trip, I might have been like, "Hey." <laughs> because uh, I, yeah. I was going back to just this piece, you know, about like the the cult of personality surrounding her. I believe it's in Slate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, um, I remember her saying, you know, like, I'm sure the next president will be like, you know, a very fine president. You know, I can leave the bench under him. Yeah. You know, and this was during Obama. And it's like, you know what? He was not. No. Yeah, <laughs> you know? know? And, and like, we, you know, like, and I'm not expecting everyone to have foreseen uh, America's descent into fascism um, coming <laughs> while we were in the middle of Obama. Um, because, you know, I can admit that I was shocked, you know, like, we always have to say, black people saw Trump coming and they saw him coming. But I was shocked 
that white people just like so overwhelmingly turned to bite even their own hand just to curse us by voting for Trump, right? So like didn't really see that coming. But then like it's so hard, you know, like loving a political figure now. And then like it's it's it I feel like it's tainted so much of RBG's memory, not that stuff, um, the white feminism stuff, specifically the fact that for the past four years, like we, we've had her on Death Watch, you know, and you've She's been fucking praying, Mr. Glass like, praying, from Unbreakable. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> you've been praying, please don't die while Trump is in office. Please. And then, of course, of course, because everything in 2020 is fucked. It happens when we're days before the election. Not even days before the election. People are already early voting. We're in the middle of an election. Right. So again, she probably died in the middle of a one-handed push-up. I mean, I'm sure. Saying <laughs> <laughs> so. uh, saying we are the granddaughters of the witches you were <laughs> able to burn. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, you know, I like, I love so much about RBG. It's just like so unfortunate, like a lot of things right now that like she had to pass at this time, you know, because there's, is there proper time to mourn her while we're um, rushing to save democracy? Yeah. Not really. <laughs> Somebody who um, brilliantly was tweeting about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, our friend Guy Branham, has a whole series of great tweets about her. So if you're, if you're looking for something abbreviated, check that out, too. And I guess that just leaves me with the fact that today, as we're recording, it is National Voter Registration Day. And, you know, it is never too late to double check that you are still registered at votesaveamerica.com slash verify, because this is an especially important election and it is especially important if you've moved since the last election, changed your name, or if you have not voted in a while. So once you've checked, make sure your friends and family have verified their registration as well. And then head to votesaveamerica.com slash every last vote for volunteer opportunities to get new voters registered and to donate to organizations helping to get registration info to people in key places ahead of their deadlines. And you know what? Sign up to be a poll worker. Yes. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've got the get Mitch or die trying thing going on at Crooked, <laughs> um, which is highlighting important um, Senate seats that we can flip because, you know, like we're going into this nightmare with um, Trump trying to rush in a Supreme Court justice. But like after that shit, we're going to have to like take back the Senate, you know, Uh, and after her death, like I don't even know the number anymore, but like raise so much money for this initiative. Uh, And so start looking into Senate races that we can support. I want to highlight Mike Espy in Mississippi, who could become the first black senator in Mississippi since Reconstruction, who is uh, in a very tight race with a woman who was joking about lynching um, like a couple years ago. So, you know, help that brother out. Also, he looks fine. So All right. Helps. Moving along. <laughs> Moving along. Uh, but but help, help him out and donate if you can. We'll be right back with a conversation about this year's Emmys. So the Emmy Awards were on Sunday evening, and unless you were Zendaya in the cast of Schitt's Creek (laughs) in succession, 
<laughs> Sit down, girl. <laughs> Stay seated. Or Watchmen, you were not winning anything, and I would no. have turned off. I would have turned off my Zoom. truly if i was nominated for a comedy and i realized that like schitt's creek was going to sweep all the comedy categories it might as well just be schitt's sweep i would have time to go Uh, (laughs) right now if uh, i have anything to do with the kaminsky method i'm running outside (laughs) (laughs) um pardon me walking outside (laughs) (laughs) because as you know this was a um award show that was broadcast from the nominees homes you know, it was a socially distanced Emmys. You know, everyone was zooming in or, well, we'll, we'll get the specifics because mm-hmm. Lewis worked on the show. That is true enough. Basically, no one was at the actual ceremony. And I feel like it's different when you were at the ceremony and you're watching a bunch of people win. At least, you know, there's the, you know, people you're sitting next to. You know, there's the camaraderie of being, you know, with everyone in the industry that you love, like coworkers, And then you have... You're drunk as well, and then there's parties <laughs> to go to after, even if you did lose, you know. But if you're just sitting at home watching yourself lose an award, it feels kind of dark. Yeah, I, I imagine it's a quiet uh, uh, evening. Yeah, I mean, the, and also, it's it's harder to, I don't want to say it's harder to pay attention, but just, yeah, what else are you looking for in the evening, necessarily? I don't know. Yeah, there, you're right. There's no, there's no extra value. Part of the joy for me was seeing someone like Alina Waite sitting by Meryl Streep and thinking, girl, what are they talking about? <laughs> what could they ever be talking about? And that's just was totally lacking. That was totally lacking this year. Yes. Well, this year the show was hosted by Jimmy Kimmel, Lewis's regular employer. Jefe. Mm-hmm. You worked on the show this year. So, I mean, yes. tell us what it was like. Well, first of all, I will say, and by the way, I think I've said something along the lines of this well before I worked for Jimmy Kimmel, but he really is like ideal in that he has the Letterman sarcasm. And by the way, it was very interesting to see David Letterman. And mm-hmm. yet also is not over it. And by that, mm-hmm. I mean like he he's like cool with the celebrities and not like dismissive or having to like turn to the camera and be like, what a load of shit every five minutes, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I enjoy him, honestly, as a presenter. He, he does seem to be having fun mm-hmm. doing it and... um. It's it's not labored yeah. in the way that we we've seen other people host awards. I appreciate like a palatable host humor that's just in good fun. Like I I get tired sometimes of a like a Ricky Gervais. I'm like, why are you? Why'd you take the job? Yeah, <laughs> why right. did you take the job? You clearly don't want to be here. And also like the narcissism of being like, we're all over this, right? As you're paid so much money to host exactly. the fucking thing. Yeah. It's like mm-hmm. it's just it, like it's just the. The worst of masculinity to mm-hmm. me is all I can say when I think of things like that. Uh, no, it was super bare bones. I was actually just thinking that, I don't know if you guys feel this way writing from home on all the stuff you write for, but it has made me grateful for college because now all entertainment writing I do right now, like writing jokes, et cetera, feels like writing a term paper. You're not surrounded by anybody. You're just like mm-hmm. alone. And so l- literally writing for the Emmys has felt like my day job and it has felt like you yeah. know, r- writing tweets or whatever. Um, I, I didn't get to go to the ceremony. There were only a couple of writers there, mm-hmm. obviously. It, it's, it's just, Everything occurs on my living room couch now. So it's I, I felt as under-glamorous as, you know, <laughs> Laura Linney sitting there waiting for Zendaya to win. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there is definitely something convenient to being able to write at your own pace. Like, even for this podcast, being able to, you know, think about what I'm going to say and have that written out kind of in a way, at least in some loose structure, even though it doesn't appear to be that way at all. Um, uh, the, and also writing for other shows, You've been, it's especially, it takes away that intimidation factor of being in a creative space with multiple people when you're by yourself. It's like, there's a screen girl. I could go to the bathroom. I could turn my camera off, which I often do. So, (laughs) 
Yeah. So, Louis, what is it like doing a ceremony, first of all, even in general for people? Because we know that you yeah. wrote for the Emmys, but how does that then entail, you know, for people listening, um, you still having to be, like, on hand during the actual show? Oh, sure. Well, in the case of this year's Emmys, I, I mean, I imagine most years the bulk of the work could be broken down into a, you know little assignments like write for Jennifer Aniston presenting an award or mm-hmm. write some patter for David Letterman appearing or whatever but in the case of this year we had to write a lot of what if stuff mm-hmm. in case like a winner's wifi went out or oh. you know some, somebody uh, didn't show up who was supposed to show up on screen you know things like that and so it actually was a lot of covering bases in a way that you would never have to do uh, with an Emmys otherwise and I wrote a lot of stuff I was proud of that will never see the light of day because it would be <laughs> Make no sense to just trot out. Um, it, this year, especially if we're just talking about the wins, we kind of predicted most of everything. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. you know, like we had the whole bit set up with the Stanley Cup being there uh, in case Shit's Creek slayed. And me, me personally, I thought they were going to lose one or two, so I was wondering if that bit would even fly. But of course, they didn't lose a fucking thing, so that worked out. Mm-hmm. Canada stays winning. I know. <laughs> They can go outside and they can win a war. Oh, I was so jealous watching them just be in that room, happy, and, like <laughs> ready to go. I was gonna ask you, um, since there was like uh, everyone was working separately, was there any transparency of like whose jokes were being used or whose writers, like which writer was getting bits in? Oh, yeah. there's a lot. There's like a huge list of like approved jokes and approved bits. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, until I saw the final document of like, for instance, the monologue, like that's the only place where you saw definitely we're going to be saying these jokes, you know, as Mm -hmm. opposed to whatever happened later in the show. I love the monologue, although I will say that it was almost M. Night Shyamalan in level of um, how long it took for the punchline on that audience (laughs) joke. (laughs) Because I'm sitting there watching it with, like, uh, my roommate and things, and we're like... what is going on? And I was right. like, at first, at first, I was like, if they're using clips from old Emmys, um, if I were an actor who was being used in one of those clips, like, sh- like there was one where Sarah Hyland is just like uproariously laughing at like <laughs> something that Jimmy says, I would have been like, well, I didn't actually find that joke as funny as the thing I was laughing at before. Right, <laughs> but um. It was. It did end up um, when it revealed that, like Jimmy in the empty audience with the cutouts, very VMAs, mm-hmm. um, right. because I remember doing the VMAs for um, MTV one year, and um, they, they had full like cutouts of people, and that was fun seeing that Rita Ora was like in the second row. Uh, (laughs) what i liked about that bit and as i was watching it i kind of had forgotten how long it was going on and i was watching it's actually nerve-wracking being on this side of the curtain watching people on twitter being like what is this what's going on (laughs) no i can i wanted to be like i can explain but um yeah (laughs) um but then Jimmy then countering with, of course there's nobody here, was like exactly the right tone to take with that, Mm -hmm. I thought. And then Jason Bateman appearing actually is what then made the joke really land for me. Right, right, right. Him being the sole person in the audience among the cutouts. I uh, have to question my sense of humor every time I laugh at a stupid little word joke, but Pandemies was a home run for me. <laughs> Pandemies really got me. I want to say I've heard that word now, like, over the past two months a million times, so it has no humor for me at all. Okay, so, so you said uh, Pandemies, and I'm just like, that's not funny. I mean, what are you talking about? Yeah. 
<laughs> in one ear and out the other. As we said, we expected a lot of the Shit's Creek wins. I expected Watchmen wins as well. Mm-hmm. Um, very excited for um, my friend Cord Jefferson for winning that oh, award. Oh, Cord's your friend? Uh, that, okay, because I'm yeah, about to yeah, fan Cord's lovely. Girl. Fan I love we yeah, we love Cord. Um Get him he, on the pod. <laughs> I would love to have Cord on. When I texted him after he won to congratulate him, I realized that some of our last texts were literally um two days before the shutdown was happening. Oh, we had wow. dinner plans wow. on Tuesday. Haunting. And then everything wow. and then everything was shut down on Sunday. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was like, oh, hey, yeah, because we had had dinner plans the week before and we had to reschedule them because I had a work thing. And we were like, yeah, just let's do next Tuesday. <laughs> nope. Right, no. There was no Tuesday. We haven't experienced one since. Um, there was no Tuesday, my favorite 1954 sci-fi film. <laughs> <laughs> but aside from that, were there things that we – that happened that we didn't expect because I expected Watchmen, mm. Succession, and Shit's Creek to sweep actually because those were the three shows people were talking about. I, I will say I didn't expect Watchmen to miss in the Gene Smart universe. To mm. me, that was one of the sure things. Yeah, uh, and she lost to Uzo Aduba in Mrs. Yeah. America, oh, yeah. which is a really great performance. Actually, it's a fabulous performance. But it's my favorite performance of the miniseries, to be honest. Yeah, uh, I The Shirley be- Chisholm stuff was the only thing that riveted me. You know, I was not a fan of Miss America like you were. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted it to be Shirley. We talked about it on the podcast that it would have been a much better yes. uh, uh, use of time, I think, if it were about Shirley Chisholm, in my opinion. And also, well, I mean, like, now, for instance, people like Gloria Steinem have talked about how this whole movement did not revolve around Phyllis Schlafly Mm-mm, in any way, mm-mm. you know. So I mean, <laughs> revisionist like history that was, to want to rewrite it that way. But we do want to see Kate Blanchett smile slowly at uh, in a villainous way. I, I do want to say that. But um, <laughs> uh, in terms in terms of the shit's creakery of it all, I will say you called Catherine. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, right. Remember you told her I think it's your gear, and she was like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> she did know. That's Canadians talking. <laughs> I can't think of another award show where. Anything has gotten zero nominations up to the last season and then won everything. That there's nothing like that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, sometimes you have like a John Hamm who was rewarded after years of being nominated, or a Kyle Chandler, or Sarah Jessica Parker. Mm-hmm. But, but not the entire show. No, and you know? for every single thing, like it almost it's a little mind boggling and it speaks to the state of what's going on in the rest of comedy, I think, a little bit more mm-hmm. than what is going on in Shits Creek, which isn't agreed upon. Lovely, pleasant, very funny show. But for it to win unanimously everything, I mean, it should have us all questioning how much we're laughing at TV these days, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, it was so funny seeing that because it it, it reminds you just of the fact that, one, Schitt's Creek was basically an unknown entity to us for, like, his first two seasons, right? Yeah. And then once it hits Netflix, like, it became so insanely popular. You have, like... Mariah Carey tweeting at Dan Levy, you know, being like, I love Shit's Creek, stuff like that, you know, so it really became like this cultural phenomenon as it was ending. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this global phenomenon. And um, it's serendipitous, I guess, that it happened in its final season because um, how exhausting would it be if this became like a modern family and it was like, yeah. Shit's Creek just kept sweeping every year. Right, right, right. Because that's what can tend to happen at the Emmys as opposed to the Oscars just because movies are different, you know? So, um, like, an actor could be nominated um, back-to-back years, um, but 
the performances are different and the people they're up against are different. But for the Emmys, for the most part, it's largely people being nominated against people that they were nominated against last year for the same performance. Totally. And, like, by the way, I do like that about the Emmys, that there will be runs of people being awarded again and again because why shouldn't they be the best still? Like, I get, like, Rhea Perlman didn't start suddenly start sucking or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, those things, I think, are genuine and authentic to the spirit of awarding the best in a category. Um, that said, it's also nice when the end of a series is rewarded because now next year there's all the suspense about whatever we're going to get. You know, mm. maybe Linda Cardellini will jump right up next year. Who knows? Yeah. Um, lastly, I would say that I really enjoyed um, Zendaya's win. Yes. Oh, yeah. Obviously. I mean, and I, I, I mean, for me, she was amazing. And I was like, yes, uh, I would love if she won that fucking award. I didn't expect it. Yeah. Um, and that I was the, the cur- spoiler I predicted. It's in my text mm. to the other writers, just mm. to let everybody know I was on Zendaya's yeah. trail. There's reasonable proof. Yes, yeah, so never expect black people to win. So you know, that's true, especially when they're up against white people. But I, I did, I did expect that win. I think I'd love that we're having a conversation now about it being an upset and what that means. Mm. But all, yeah. Well, page six was also, I feel like, partly trolling. But they called. There was a big article about like. Zendaya's upset win mm-hmm. uh, at the Emmys, and then it devolved into people not knowing the what meaning upset of upset means. win, but then arguing back and forth. Like, yeah. it wasn't an upset. She was the best of the year, and so we knew that she was going to win. Someone tried to even tweet, like, the Emmys reward youth. Like, so we knew she was going to win. I was like, none of that is true. The youngest woman to ever win the lead actress role. <laughs> what yeah. are you talking also, about? Also, just because we know she was amazing doesn't mean, like, the old people voting for the Emmys are going to know that, yeah. you know? The upset situation, though, I did just want people to go to a dictionary and look at the second definition of a word. I know. Just because, you know, yeah. that would have cleared everything up. But yeah. Also, I mean, that's what Zendaya fans do, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I, I once had to delete a comment from her Instagram when, in a photo of hers, and I was like, girl, I am gagging over this outfit. Cause, and um, fans started responding to me saying, why are you saying that she makes you sick? <laughs> Okay, meet a gay person. Meet one. Uh, oh, I also just wanted to say quickly, a trivia question. So uh, Aida just said she's the youngest drama actress winner at the age of 24. Mm-hmm. Do you know who the previous holder of that record was at age 26? Was it was it in this century? It was. Anna Paquin and True Blood? I'm kidding. No, time's up. It is actually... It was actually last year's winner, Jodie Comer. Oh, so. wow. oh wow! Jodie Comer's only yeah. twenty-seven now. I know. Isn't that's that mind blowing? So disfor- yeah. That's so no. That's so unfair. Some justice has <laughs> to be sought out. <laughs> now I really do need to kill Eve. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember. I know. Her I was going to say that. Don't. Did you watch the show? It's okay. If you did it. It's yes. okay if you did mm-hmm. it. No. no, yeah, that's fine. That's I fine. no, I watch, remember I watched the first season and then I was like, I don't really like this. It's the only good season, <laughs> and if you didn't like that one, I promise you don't like the rest because it spiraled out of control. <laughs> uh, all right, well, thank you for that inside tip on the Emmys, Lewis. <laughs> oh, as we as felt as like always, we were interviewing guys. you today. <laughs> My day will come on this podcast. Just let you know. <laughs> uh, let me cancel the show, child. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis is booked for Keep It. Actually, you know what? This week is our last episode ever. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We will be right back with David Chang. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis. Yes? When you see footprints in the sand... 
that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain Mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Our first guest today is a, well, I've never been able to use the word tycoon in restaurant speak, but it feels appropriate now. I always think of the word tycoon just with that game, roller coaster tycoon. Oh, yeah. Lemonade uh, tycoon, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You're pretending that's the first use of the word. It's not, but okay. (laughs) But um, truly, you're like the acclaimed founder and chef of Mamafuku restaurant group, host of Netflix's Ugly Delicious, and now you have a memoir, Eat a Peach. David Chang, you're doing it all, and um, we love the book. Thank you so much. Uh, honored to be on your podcast, and strange that you guys have read the book. It's I don't know why I should be surprised, but it's <laughs> it's very startling. <laughs> <laughs> it's full of such casual insights about your personality, too. One of my favorite parts of it is you say there's no such thing as a TMI email in terms of your business, in terms of mm-hmm. what like employees are talking about, et cetera. And I want like you 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 will take any insight about what is happening in any sector of the restaurant and it, and probably store it and remember it. Just what what are your favorite like emails you've gotten from staff just about what's happening in a restaurant? I'm sure that actually ends up fostering like a super social environment. It usually is customer interactions. That, that that's my favorite or uh, something unbelievably stupid that uh, someone does. It, like a cooking disaster. Those are those are always the best ones. Probably my favorite thing is when a manager is writing a log uh, at the end of the night, and it's been an incredibly tough day for them. Yet they still find a way to crack a joke, whatever joke. Mm. And and usually it's funny because I feel like in the restaurant industry, at least for me, it's been less about the cooking over the years than who can be the funniest person in the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, also, even in a situation where you're just like talking about what happened during the day, I feel like jokes are necessary because this this sounds philosophical. I don't mean it to be, but like sense of humor is like truth telling. So I'm sure it just brings you all closer together, makes the restaurant better. You know, absolutely. Go ahead and wax wax comedic, Lewis. But uh, <laughs> uh, speaking of emails, um, when you it's really interesting to me in the part in your book where you were talking about the anxious emails that you were sending to your staff in preparation for. Uh, 
Nishi's visit from Pete Wells. And I really, like, it was interesting to see the underbelly, the underpork belly. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> the underbelly of, of your operation and how you interacted with your staff and, you know, how that critique deeply affected you. I wanted to know, are you going down any holes with the Eat a Peach reviews? Not that you have any reason to, but how are you doing with that? Uh, of course, I've, I've read them all. I, I, you know, it's it's just, I mean, I'm a, a glutton for punishment. And I don't really remember anything that's positive. Mm. I only remember the ones that are like, oh, this sucks. Or <laughs> I, I thought that Dave Chang was an asshole. Now I know for sure he's an asshole or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's a strange thing. And I think that was my reluctance uh, of doing a memoir was not, again, the what's wrong with me uh, type of uh, why would I want to write about myself? That's a whole different topic. But what if people hate it? And it's not because it's poorly written. What if it's really well written, but people are like, I hate it because I, I think he sucks. That's really a possibility. And, and, and I'm glad that that's not uh, the case. If anything, people are like, yeah, he sucked, but he's working on becoming a better person. So that, that, I, that I can. <laughs> <laughs> a sympathetic troll. That's um, nice. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, even just thinking about that, you know, I feel like the book taps into the idea that um, when we think of famous chefs, um, especially to like the outside um, people who aren't really, you know, part of the restaurant industry, like when we think of chefs, we largely think of this culture of like a chef who is sort of like a, they yell at everyone in the kitchen, you know, it's like that is the kind of person you think of when you think of a chef. And it's easy to see that like in pop culture too. And I guess my question is just sort of like, what is it like coming up in that culture, knowing that like that is a thing that um, is generally like rewarded, like people are used to like a chef like that. And like what made you sort of become a person where you were like, I want to become like a different kind of chef. Because there's parts of the book too where you talk about how like you remember in the past, you know, like a diner would be in. Like that one review from the diner where they talked about like they were uncomfortable because like you yelled at um, someone right. on the line while they were sitting there dining. I don't know if it's, it, it was like an immediate awakening and, and the way I've, I, I, I tell myself and to, you know, people around me sometimes, it's, it's if you can uh, sort of understand the scenario that I think a lot of people can understand or have been in, the smelly kid growing up never knew they smelled bad. <laughs> right? This is right? painfully <laughs> relatable. And in, in fact, I was the smelly kid that was like blaming everyone else for the smell. Mm -hmm. That motherfucker over there, God, you fucking stink. <laughs> and it's a painful realization when you realize that, oh my God, you were the one, or maybe you weren't the one that smelled, but you were the reason that other people smelled bad or something along those lines, right? Whatever it was, when you realize that, it's hard not to look at your past and be like, man, how, how was I so stupid and selfish and just ignorant and just an asshole? And, you know, and I think I've been in that position too, where that painful truth is so hurtful and you put your head in the sand because it's, it's too much to comprehend, but I think it's something that you can't avoid and you're going to have to face that one day. And that's, that's ultimately what happened with me. And you know that it's there, you know, this terrible odor is lingering and, and no amount of perfume is going to get rid of it. You're just going to have to like, you know, deal with it properly. And that's the ultimate realization that I had to come to. And what is that even like in the sense of 
you know, are there just like past relationships with um, other chefs or like people who come into the restaurant? You know, like the the moment where you're sort of like trying to let people know that like this is a different David Chang than like the one that you've used to interact with, you know, because I could think that like the process of um, becoming a better or different person, you know, is 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 always interesting when your brain knows that like I've been going to therapy, like I've worked on these things with myself. Right. But people that you run into, like, if they haven't seen you in, like, three years, you know, like, they don't know that. And you can't do anything about that. Mm-hmm. I think for a long time, people still thought, and people still think that I'm probably the obnoxious asshole f- from age 27 to, like, 29, right? Mm-hmm. We're just stuck in that world, this mentality that we're always of that age and of that mentality. And I can't do anything about that. The worst thing you can do is say, look at me, I've changed. I think the only thing you can do is let your actions speak for yourself. And the reality is, too, is just because you know mm-hmm. doesn't mean, again, it's actionable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right? Just because I know that I've changed, just because I know that I have problems, just because I've worked at it doesn't mean that I'm accustomed to actually making it part of my fabric of who I am every day. And, and the reality is that whoever I am as a person that is unsavory, in some ways, that's like my normal default setting now. And I think in the book, and not just in the book, I, I liken my rage and my anger and a lot of my non-neuroses, but just my general mental problems that are not depression related to being sort of, uh, I guess some of it's related to depression, to being an addict, right? And, and if you have friends that have addiction issues, whether they be drugs or uh, uh, something else, you know, it's funny in society now today, if you have a friend that's an alcoholic or recovering from, say, heroin or opioid addiction and they fall off the wagon, but you know they're in earnest, you know that they're trying. They're not trying to use it as a crutch. They're literally trying. You don't tell them, you know, screw off. I can't believe you failed again. <laughs> you know, you sucker. I can't mm-hmm. believe you, 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 you fell off the wagon again. <laughs> and I think that right now it would be... It's a, it, it's a long time coming, but I hopefully people can appreciate the the nuance in this. In a world where there's little nuance, especially in social media, how do you determine that someone's intent is right? Because mm-hmm. something in, that I've learned, again, over the past few years is in the kitchen, I tend to judge everything on absolutes. That works in coding. <laughs> that works in science. <laughs> That doesn't work mm-hmm. in human interactions. <laughs> and, and honestly, there's a whole school of philosophy where, you know, if you try to apply science and the academic rigor to that, that's how the world goes sideways. That's how you get totalitarian governments. That's how you get Nazi Germany and shit like that, right? Like, I know that's a crazy, you know, mm-hmm. statement, but in some ways it's easy to do because it's so reductive and you can be like, well, you should act this way because it makes sense, but it doesn't account for how we learn. At least that's how I believe it. I personally learned from screwing up and having the time, the privilege to reflect and to be told, hey, you didn't do this right. And this is now compounded even more now that I'm a father, right? And I think the hardest thing to be as a person is to be present. I think being present is the ultimate end goal. We can have platonic ideals as like North Stars doesn't mean like there's only one way to get there. And being present as a father, being present as a manager, being present as a chef, those same ideals to me are like what makes like the best version of like democracy, right? Like you have to build the right framework. You have to build the sandbox, which is ultimately like a constitution, you know, the culture of how you do your family, how you do your business. These are the things that you sort of instill 
but ultimately you have to give people the freedom of choice. And you can only hope in aggregate in your decisions in your lifetime that you make more right decisions than wrong. And that's the hardest thing to do is to not intervene, right? But all your work needs to be done Mm -hmm. prior to that. And that's impossibly hard to do. And that's sort of what I'm trying to focus on is myself. And hopefully other people will let me do that too, is, is like, if you judge me on one thing that I've done poorly, then yeah, you're right. I'm a fucking terrible motherfucker. <laughs> First of all, you should be president. I mean, meant to say that right now. And then um, sec- secondly, you were just being self-deprecating about having written a memoir. Like that was a memoir unto itself. You just pop memoirs, not even thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> but something I've been thinking about for a long time now, ever since the advent of probably Top Chef, is mm-hmm. what is it about chefs that is so telegenic. Literally any show you watch, I think, that has chefs on it, like they are routinely brilliantly expressive. They are memorable. And then weirdly, food, which is something you can only consume in the present, in person, if you will, it still works as a TV show. And I'm wondering, like, when I was watching Ugly Delicious just the other night, I was thinking, like, why is this good? Why can I sit through this when it's literally about something I cannot consume? Can you explain that? Well, on the the chef end... I don't know. I mean, maybe it's because they have a combination of extremely high emotional intelligence and incredibly low awareness. <laughs> perfect perfect you know, for television. Perfect for yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's also possible that there's a tendency and a correlation of being like borderline sociopath and telegenic on TV. I don't know. Speak on And uh, <laughs> on the food end, I think it's it's clear that as food has just increased its awareness on TV and social media, it has become in some ways the cultural currency of a younger generation because it is the definition of FOMO. I'm eating this and you cannot, Mm -hmm. and you can't download this on an app store. Mm -hmm. You can't like this. You can like this, but you can't eat this. Mm -hmm. That's never going to change, which is why I think culture right now is sort of transfixed on what food can be because it can't be what everything else is in culture right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, speaking of fucking FOMO, I was rewatching a, an Ugly Delicious episode, and I I fully had um, plans to go to like Noma uh, this year, you know. And now the pandemic happened, and then I'm watching that, and it's just reminding you of like you're seeing very you're seeing restaurants that you want to go to, you're seeing like food that just like looks so fucking good, and it's like, well, I can't go especially now because we're in the middle of a pandemic and sort of like, what is that like for, I mean, your restaurants are open for takeout right now. Yeah. Some are, some are dining in and and I don't want to depress the audience on, on the, on the dismal dystopian future of restaurants here in America. Um, What makes it more depressing actually is when you see restaurants in uh, other parts of the world, like Copenhagen, Denmark, where, there's like no transmission of COVID and you don't even have to wear masks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like that is what's like striking to me is you can go to Noma right now. If you, if you want to go there and um, people are eating normal, it's like normal. Yeah. Friend did. He just moved to Copenhagen truly two months before the pandemic. He moved there for a job and now he's like, well, I'm here. Yeah. God damn. (laughs) Yeah. Hit the lottery. lottery. I hate your friend. I hate him too. Yeah, I hate Alex Kane. Yeah, Alex. Alex, I I never want to meet you ever. And you're banned from my restaurants if you ever make it back to America. Um, But no, it's 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 um, 
this whole situation is incredibly depressing because not being able to go out to eat, having to eat, knowing that you might get sick, or even if that's not true anymore, but just the fear, that takes all potential possibilities of true hospitality away. Mm -hmm. And how can you do your job in a, you know, a fog of fear? And it's, it's unfortunate. And, and it's, I have friends in all in restaurants all over the world. And I can't believe that our leadership in this country, obviously, you know, your network talks about it a lot. It's so incredibly bad in how they Mm -hmm. responded to the hospitality sector. It just shows you what's important to them. And and it's, it's, uh, I cannot actually comprehend how poor the response has been across the board, but we're going to lose tremendous amount of restaurants, let alone not even travel. Right. So Mm -hmm. I'm not even focusing too much on what's happening outside of the world because it makes me quite upset. Yeah. Add it to the running list of failures from this administration. But, um, you know, I speaking of it in your book, I'd be remiss not to mention how open and vulnerable you are when you talk about your bipolar disorder, which is one something I struggle to do because I, I, I want to add like an air of honesty when I talk about my bipolar disorder. But, you know, you don't want people to know that you have these highs and lows and then allow them to judge you on that, which is the opposite of what you do in this book. You're very honest about it. And what I'd never seen before is someone talking so openly about how their mania isn't inherently bad and that it has its upsides and how it propels you to get shit done. And I wanted to know, especially when you're opening Momofuku for the first time, how did you use the manic side of you to propel you to success? Well, first of all, thank you for sharing with everybody, you know, your struggles. And I think these are the things, the the steps that are needed where, you know, ultimately the goal is to have people look at any kind of mental illness as having asthma. Yeah. Right. It's, it's not something that you should be ashamed about. And in terms of me being open about it, I think it was not always like this. It was years of therapy and the first, you know, several years, I didn't want to tell anybody. And now, you know, those that are close to me, when you tell them, they're like, oh yeah, that t- makes total sense. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> like, you know, like, oh yeah. yeah. I mean, and I know part of the reason over the years I was a little bit more open to it is, you know, people, I would never been shy about telling people that I saw a psychiatrist. But a lot of people, when you add probably five people over 16 years, that adds up. Every year, someone seems to come up to me and say, hey, Dave, you're fucking crazy. It seems like you get help. Uh, what do I do? Right. And, and the fact that it's impossible to, to get help, it seems is so hard. Even now, I'm in, I'm in Los Angeles and I need to get a new psychiatrist just to prescribe medicine. I have called three psychiatrists from my internist in Los Angeles and not one has called me back. Besides like multiple calls, it's, it's a very hard to get help in general, I think, mm-hmm. and more, more so than ever. And in terms of how the mania has helped me, you can't connect those dots till much later, right? You have no idea when you're in it, right? And, and there are moments where I look back and I'm just sort of like, oh my God, how, how was I even behaving that way? And I think the hardest thing to admit is that you have agency in how you behave, but ultimately no. And and not having control of that and knowing that there's someone else, you know, pulling the levers and steering the wheel is frightening. Mm-hmm. So I don't really look at it too fondly. I'm more like, how do I Judah move this and, and see that there are some positives? And at the end of the day, one reason I've been open about it is, you know, more and more I look at everything as an either or proposition. And it's like, who cares? 
You know what I mean? Like, like who cares? Yeah. No one ultimately is going to care. And, and, and maybe if I'm more honest about it, it will actually help where people won't mm. give a shit about it. Yeah. I mean, I have to imagine too that um, what is helpful too is just projects, things to do, you know, and like you're, you have a lot of projects, but even just like being a chef and cooking, mm. it's probably something to focus on. You know, I feel like one, especially during this pandemic, so many people have um, started cooking themselves even more than they used to. I know I have. Um, this this weekend um, for the Emmys, actually, I made the um, chicken wings from um, the Mamafuku cookbook. I, I think I saw that. I think you were the only yeah. person <laughs> in the world that made <laughs> it that. took a whole yeah, weekend. Yeah. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> took a whole weekend, and I, I made sure to read it because I had read the first line first where it said, like, this is the longest chicken wings recipe in the world. So I was like, okay, <laughs> so I whatever I do, I'd better start this on, like, Friday. Uh, <laughs> uh, and they turned, out, they turned out fucking great, so thank you. You're welcome. Did you save the jelly? I did. It is in my fridge. Good. Never throw that away. That's liquid gold. Yeah. I do have to do it with duck confit next time. Yeah, that'll, so that'll be delicious. I did not have that. I'm shocked because I would never make that recipe at home ever, mm. <laughs> ever. <laughs> but, uh, but you're right in terms of, um, which is why I have maybe like this profound love and hatred of my profession is because it does provide me with many opportunities to work my ass off, to give me unrealistic goals that are very tangible, right? Mm. That seem impossible, which I was why like, I liken so much of, who I am and what I do to mountain climbing, even though I don't climb mountains, which is obviously a reference on the book because it's like, yeah, I, I could climb that mountaintop. I don't know how fucking how I'll do it, but theoretically I could do it. And the fact that that is an impossible yet tangible goal is how I frame a lot of these things that happen, whether it's making one recipe, because inherently, as you see, I'm a lazy person. I don't want to do it myself. But throughout my career, I, I've made myself these really tall tasks that are so hard if I don't pour myself into it I won't even like get close to being accomplished and yet by doing that it prevents me from sort of worrying about myself and and the self-loathing that I'm so good at so mm -hmm. I also recognize that by doing that it is very problematic because it prevents you from enjoying anything else you know you become mm -hmm. single-minded focus on something that's impossible that it doesn't allow you to enjoy the good times, right? You're, it's just, mm -hmm. it can be debilitating, right? And, and, and you're like, why? why? Why did I do all of that work? Because ultimately, I think for me, without trying to wax philosophical about it again, everything should be in pursuit of happiness. And why am I fucking doing this if it's ultimately making me more unhappy? And I'm currently in that predicament right now. So I'm still working my ass off and I'm at a place where I'm just reevaluating a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Thank you so much for being here. You got it, David. I mean, we we could have. There's so much more we could have even talked about. The, <laughs> the memoir is great. Uh, and by the and way, you, know you will I'm just bad. like I, I I don't mean to be cheeky. Swallow it up so fucking fast. It is a, a <laughs> lovely, lovely. You'll read. devour it. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's a it's a it's a great read, and I can't Truly. honestly can't wait to get back to New York because not Noodle Bar Fuku is one of my faves. Oh, I, I appreciate uh, it. Honestly, I first had that um, chicken sandwich at Beachella. Oh, yeah. Beyonce's Coachella. <laughs> I went, because that was my first Coachella, because I was like, got to go see Beyonce. And I remember we're, like, in this, like, tent, and, like, there's all these different restaurants, and, like, people are just, like, in line for 
this fucking chicken sandwich. And I was like, you know what? I'm doing it. And then we all got in line for it. And I was like, this is so wow. fucking good. I had no idea. You are a real supporter. Yeah, so oh fucking good. But also maybe one of the last things I should have been eating at a music festival <laughs> when I was on low drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I consider a you a spicy chicken sandwich. <laughs> it, in a way, it's the bravest thing you've ever done. It's exciting. <laughs> well, guys, it was a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for being great hosts, and so easy to talk to you all. So, thank you, and again, thanks for making this chicken recipes. And um, yeah. appreciate the support. Thank you for reading the book, and I'm very grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, sure. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Our next guest became a household name playing villains on Heroes and American Horror Story. And now he's one of the stars of Netflix's Boys in the Band, reprising a role he played on Broadway. Please welcome back to Keep It, yeah. Zachary Quinto. Hey. Good Hi. to see everybody. <laughs> Aida and Lewis welcome. weren't there when I came on the first time. It was just you and me, I remember. No. Yeah. It was just me and you in um, some, like, building in Wiltshire and La Cienega around there I remember coming there it was fun anyway uh and then subsequently you we you we've hung out a number of times since then so it's nice to see you back on your show and now one of the last times was at a restaurant that has now closed down is it because of the pandemic <laughs> yeah we went to Mam Sir which is mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. used to be right next to Akbar in mm-hmm. Silver Lake and it, it closed like mm. three weeks ago were they trying to like do takeout, et cetera, and then they just couldn't? They were actually because yeah. like I I passed I drove by once and people were lined up. Yeah, food. I, I feel like I remember seeing that not too long ago as well. But I guess it's not enough to keep a restaurant going, and that was also such a destination. I feel like the going there was part of the experience, so mm-hmm. it might not it might not translate as well to DoorDash. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're in, you're back in LA now. After living in New York forever. That's right. I'm back uh, for now. You know, I'm, I still have my place in the city. And, uh, and I, I feel like, I don't know. I mean, I just feel there's this part of me right now that's really missing New York because all my friends that I'm talking to are, you know, I think really enjoying the last gasp of summer and warm weather and being able to be out on the street with all the restaurants. And I've gotten some photos from my neighborhood that really make me miss it and make me recognize the way in which there's this kind of interconnectivity and this, the way that New Yorkers show up for one another feels pretty palpable back there right now. So I've been missing a little bit, but um, I had been planning to come out to LA anyway uh, before the pandemic. And so now that I, I saw a window to make the move and I just decided to jump on it. And now that it's turning to fall and winter, I have, I have no desire to be back in new york in the midst of all this it's a it's really um i'm i'm gonna stay put for a minute so yeah i'm back 
Embrace the isolated snark of L.A. I, I assure you it will edify you through these difficult times. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I feel like it's, uh, I don't know, it's just, uh, as I was saying, I, I find it like an easier place to be. And uh, so uh, I'm enjoying it as much as I can. I, without, you know, there there has to be, I think, a foundation of recognizing how fortunate we are to live and go on hikes and take the dogs out and stuff. I mean, there's so many people in the country and around the world who don't have that luxury. So I, I want to always be reminded of that for sure. Uh, I was extra- I was ecstatic to see Boys in the Band because I had only seen the movie before, which I had seen actually a couple of times because as I've seen you talk about in interviews, it is a fascinating artifact because it is, first of all, just a play about gay guys hanging out. <laughs> so you're just like watching people like, like what it looks like for gay guys in like those striped pants who like, you know, hooked up with like Roddy McDowell or whoever was hanging out at that time. And like just watching them enjoy themselves. And then it turns into this much more dramatic thing in the latter half. But what fascinated you just about Boys in the Band before you took the role of it? And I know you were reluctant to take the part at first. Yeah, I had never seen, I still haven't seen the original movie because I hadn't seen it when I got invited to do the play. So I didn't think that was a very good time to watch it. And then shortly after the play, uh, I, I they talked about our movie, so I thought, well, I don't, I don't want to watch it until I know whether we're making a movie of it, and then obviously we did. So I, now I, I guess after our, you know, now I'm safe to to watch the original. But um, I was really resistant to it. I, I I fell under the influence of a lot of the stigma that's been associated with this play over the years, and I had never seen it. Uh, I had maybe read some scenes of it, but I hadn't ever really read it from beginning to end. So I really occupied the space of this ignorant gay who was like that, that old thing. Like I just allowed the associations of it being a kind of uh, reductive, stereotypical, backward looking museum piece to influence me um, and how wrong I was and how, uh, how, how the experience of doing the play and now the movie has really changed my position and really allowed me to deepen uh, an appreciation for Mart and for um, the seminal work. So what attracted me to it was ultimately the people, right? I've been really wanting to work with Joe Mantello for many years on stage. And he and I have been friends for a long time and the opportunity to be in one of his productions. And, you know, I went to college with Matt Bomer and I've been friends with, I worked with Charlie and Brian Hutchison and I've, you know, known Jim and Andrew for years. So there was a, there was a kind of uh, camaraderie that existed from the beginning that that really pulled me into the experience. And even though I was a little resistant to it, ultimately I was like, well, if all of these guys are doing this and excited about doing this, then I must be the odd man out. And, uh, and I don't want to miss an opportunity. And, and I'm certainly glad that, uh, that I made the decision I made. I would be kicking myself right now if, if I was just watching it all unfold mm-hmm. and not a part of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, of course, glad that you did the movie as well and the play. It's funny, this movie does this, does such a good job of transporting you to that time and that era and the, the feeling. Uh, probably a feeling I wouldn't have ever been afforded because I can't really imagine myself in that space. Like I was telling Lewis prior to this, I had to do so much deciphering in the dialogue to understand <laughs> what was going on. And probably because I wasn't a gay man in the, in the 1960s, and I'm assuming nor were Which you. is what I currently right. am. So. Yeah, which is <laughs> Lewis. That, yeah, yeah. that is honestly, actually if, Lewis. <laughs> if I found out either of you two men were like time-traveling warlocks, I would not be confused at See, all. Right, wait for it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what was it like for you getting into the character of Harold? Was he, is he a recognizable person? Do you, do you know any Harolds? I know people who make up an amount. Album 
you know, like that are part of an amalgam that is Harold. Um, I don't know one specific Harold the way that Mark did, right? Uh, Harold is based on a, a real life person named Howard Jeffrey, who was Mark Crowley's best friend and nemesis. And uh, <laughs> and so it was, a, it was a, a real joy to be able to talk to Mark about his relationship with Howard and um, to learn a lot about the character through those conversations. And then there's also just, um, there's the kind of person that Harold is, which is a deeply uh, self-aware, uh, also self-loathing person who has who has actually transformed that self-loathing into a kind of power because he's faced it all within himself. And, and I really appreciate that about him. Uh, he's incredibly observant. He's unafraid to say what he thinks in the most acid-tongued way. So there's a kind of delight in playing a character like that. It's pretty different from who I am in my real life. So I feel like it was a, it was a great opportunity to explore that and to have fun with it. But I think we've all met a Herald or two in our day, haven't we, boys? Maybe. <laughs> if, when midnight rolls around, I go to like a Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf place where like maybe <laughs> maybe the barbs come out. Maybe it's not as nice anymore. Like yeah. maybe yeah. were we I having fun? Right. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's right. maybe. Maybe tomorrow. No, that. Um, first of all, I love your look as Harold because you you look like a young Elliot Gould. It is very <laughs> Elliot Gould. It is exactly <laughs> Elliot Gould. Yes. Right. yes, I'll take that. Uh, I'll take that. What I really enjoyed about watching it um, is just remembering how um, Mart must have been um, writing from this place where one there aren't representations of gay men um, on theater at all, you know, like there, there aren't films of it. And then, you know, the play comes and you have gay actors in it and then you have the movie come. And then um, he was involved too, I think with the revival um, before yeah. he died earlier yeah. this year. Mm -hmm. um, and so recognizing things that feel familiar, I guess, as a gay man, but also just seeing how things have changed. And I really love, not to ruin a story that's been around forever, um, <laughs> for people who do still need to discover it, but um, it, it starts out very fun and then jumps to being acidic, but the ending between you and Jim Parsons mm. just sort of shows that like these men who could go on this merry-go-round with one another can can still be like, I'll call you tomorrow. Right. And still be like Matt Bomber to Jim Parsons. It's like, I'll still see you next week, mm -hmm. you know? And I think mm -hmm. that it is a beautiful, just sort of precursor to where we all sort of can be now, you know, because you can see whether it's media or other reality TV things where it's like, um, you think that gay men should be like that with one another all the time. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and I think that the end of Boys in the Band really shows that where we can be uh, yeah. and where most of us are now, you know, yeah. and, and I don't, especially think in like a post therapy us... universe, you know, yes. I mean? yeah. you know, and I think a lot of our anger too, you know, like doesn't come at least from that innate self-loathing that um, gay men probably had in, you know, the mid sixties. Yeah. They didn't really have anywhere to put it outside of their own inner circles. So it had to be able to withstand those relationships had to be able to withstand that kind of expression of rage and resentment. And because outside of the door of the apartment, they weren't safe in the same way that they were inside. And 
you know, I think there's something universal about these characters and, and ultimately they're, they're longing for a kind of acceptance. They're longing for a kind of opportunity to see themselves in the world around them. And, and I don't think that's entirely different from today, whether you're gay or straight or a man or a woman or how you identify or, you know, I think everybody is looking for that kind of acceptance. And so beyond the fact that this is a story told through the lens of the gay male experience, I think it's something that, that taps into something a little bit more. I think it's a story that taps into something a little bit more resonant than that. Um, and certainly something that I can relate to even, even now. Uh, one of my favorite things about this play and movie is the references the characters make therein, which I'm sure required a lot of wickying on your part. Specifically, they what, something that tripped me up was that recently I sent the Wikipedia of Maria Montez to somebody who was this uh-huh. old actress who was called Cobra Woman. Uh-huh. And it, it comes up in the play and I'm like, oh wait, I have no original thoughts. Like every gay man who has existed before me has like laid the groundwork. So how much like research did it require to like just understand like what the fuck they were talking about at times? Yeah, well, we had, uh, you know, we had a great, there, there was such a spirit of um, our own gayness among the cast. And that was one of the joys of being, uh, you know, a group of nine openly gay actors playing these roles. And so we kind of filled in blanks for one another. And, um, you know, yeah, there were certainly things we had to research. And, and again, it comes back to the great good fortune we had to have Mart. Uh, around right. um, and and really, you know, as involved in the process as we ever wanted him or needed him to be, um, he was incredibly uh, excited, obviously, and uh, and and really game to have these conversations with us about specific historical references and also about his own personal experience of writing the play. And I, I mean, I find the story of how he how he came to write the play pretty incredible, and and a, and pretty strong indication of where things were socially at the time. There was a New York Times theater critic named Stanley Kaufman who had written an article impugning the gay playwrights of that time. So Tennessee Williams and William Inge and Edward Albee for taking the gay experience and appropriating it to heterosexual relationships. And, you know, these sort of grand characters of the American theater like Blanche Dubois or Martha and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf um, you know, these were substitutes for the gay experience. And so Stanley Kaufman really impugned them and, and was like, you know, and, and Mart read this article that was all about how, you know, gay playwrights should just tell their own stories and leave the, you know, heterosexual marriages alone. And Mart kind of thought to himself, yeah, why, why hasn't anyone told this story about a group of gay friends hanging out? And that's what prompted him to write this play, which I find, you know, really fiery in its own way. And that that's the beginning of this whole journey is a pretty significant contribution, not only to the theater, but to, I think, the evolution of gay identity and gay integration in terms of storytelling and representation. So um, we were really fortunate to have him and obviously all really saddened by the fact that we don't have him anymore Mm -hmm. to share this experience of the movie coming out. But he was on set. He was there last summer when we were filming and... (laughs) And I, I know that he was really thrilled about it. And uh, and so that's at least some small consolation. That's such an interesting um, convo, because I think we've talked about that before, just this idea of gay men of the time having to use women, like women and heterosexual um, relationships as avatars for queerness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, so fu- it's so weird watching like a... Um, 
suddenly last summer I watched the film for the first time um, <laughs> and seeing like uh, just like if you don't know that this film is about um, the secret is this man is actually gay like you're watching it and you're just like what the fuck are these people talking about because yeah, they're talking yeah. around things <laughs> that in the 60s would have been like oh that's what they mean but for right. us now it just like seems like people are being vague but um it's just interesting to think about that as storytelling because that conversation I think was even coming up recently with some people with um with slave play. Uh-huh. You know, it was um because Jeremy O'Harris wrote a play that was a lot inspired by um his experience, you know, in interracial relationships. But the lead of it ended up being a woman. Um, but that's a lot to say about you know like are gay men are we are can you even still have like a gay lead with relationships like that and have it go to Broadway the way mm. that. Um, plays would now you know I think we can tell like the inheritance and you know boys in the band can work as a revival because they already know it worked but Uh it just made me think like would a regular just sort of romance play you know work yeah interesting if it's not a revival or it's not a kind of epic tale of a certain period in history like the AIDS epidemic or you know Mm -hmm. right like the inheritance did I wonder uh, I'm sure uh, I guess if you get big enough stars, it probably could yeah. go Broadway. You know what I mean? <laughs> Honestly, in the end. But at this point, the state of the American theater, I think, is so deeply in flux that it will be very interesting to see what happens when we come back from this, whenever that may be, and how the theater has changed and evolved in ways because of this long hiatus, mm-hmm. um, also because of the Black Lives Matter movement and the, you know, the subsequent social uh, uprising that's taken place and the acknowledgement of the the institution of theater being historically white supremacist and racist in its own unique way i think it will be really interesting to see what kinds of stories are are being told and uh mm-hmm. i can't wait for it i'm so bereft of of the theater it's really the hardest part of this is like mm-hmm. i get these these memories of like walking in New York on my way to see a play or on the train or having finished seeing something that deeply moved me and just kind of walking around the city. And it's really, that's, those are the hardest things to shake, mm-hmm. you know, cause I don't know about you all, but for me, this period has been a lot about staying with what's happening right now. I can't get mm-hmm. too far outside of my own experience because if I do, um, I start to open my mind up to things that I wish were, or used to be, or, you know, may never be again and, and and it can kind of invite in this existential despair and those memories of the theater are certainly um hairline triggers that that mm-hmm. i'm you know struggling against one of the last things i did mm-hmm. truly was like a weekend in new york oh it is um, a weekend before the pandemic and like i saw three plays and so they're all still there what did you um, see uh, well, I saw um, Little Shop of Horrors. Oh yeah. Uh, not, um, Jonathan had already left it, but Gideon. I saw him in that. I saw him in that months ago. I saw Gideon uh, in it too, because yeah. that's Gideon one of my favorite good. musicals. Yeah. So I so saw good. that. Uh, I saw Six. Oh yeah. And I saw Tina the musical. Oh, okay, cool. Which was amazing. I saw Little Shop. I didn't see Six or Tina, but uh, I really, I was, I was just getting ready to start a like marathon. Um, the night before they shut Broadway down, I, I had seen uh, West Side Story. Mm. I was so excited for the revival of Carolina Change, which is one of my favorite yes. musicals of all time. Uh, and so I had tickets for that. I had, you know, I was really, it was the spring season, so everything was about to open. And I was like, so yeah, it's, it's tough to, it's tough to be faced with those empty theaters and all those marquees that are kind of 
baking in the sun um mm-hmm. and who knows when they'll be back yeah i was gonna ask you about the end of the movie and that's funny because the the play itself really could be called waiting for harold in the way that i'm just <laughs> waiting and waiting for you to appear as the birthday guest there is a scene prior to your appearance where um a potentially closeted man attacks another party goer mm. and i i think about that moment a lot because even though it was it's causative it caused a separation that conflict was resolved almost immediately and everyone could continue with the festivities as if nothing happened and it made me have to shift my understandings of what masculinity looked like in gay culture and to ira's point earlier how easy it is to kind of come back from fighting where mm-hmm. whether it be with gay men and i wanted to ask you is that something that you think also translates to your life and your experiences with other gay men is that is that something that crosses over what a great question. I mean, what a great observation about the story as well, um, because they do resolve it and proceed um, with, you know, it's a pretty significant turning point. It's a pretty significant attack, so to speak. And, and everybody does regain composure relatively quickly. I mean, my relationships in the world aren't reflective of the kinds of relationships in this piece per se. I, I don't, I don't have a lot of conflict or if I have conflict, I try to resolve it in a direct manner and with some modicum of respect and kind of discourse rather than like attacking someone. Or, you know, if I am attacked, I I try to get to what's underneath things as quickly as I can so that you can resolve a situation, not just symptomatically, but systemically. Um, So for me, I mean, I don't really hold grudges. Um, I don't really hold grudges against anybody per se um but it's a good question in terms of like are we conditioned i mean if i'm hearing the question right are we conditioned to kind of bounce back from things yeah is there is there either a resilience or a um aversion to conflict or an aversion to kind of deep conflict that keeps us from allowing ourselves to go there um, I can only speak for myself, I think, which is to say that if I have to go there, I will. Yeah, the question is actually, Zachary Quinto, do you like to fight? <laughs> do you like to fight? <laughs> it's pretty much what I'm asking. Aida, wants to, start, Aida <laughs> wants to start a queer fight club is Great. what she yes, wants. Yeah. We can, we, but we will be talking about we it. Can do that. <laughs> we can do that after our, after our dodgeball tournament. Um, <laughs> I, um, I don't like to fight. I like to, I like to process. How about yeah. that? And if the processing requires difficult conversations or conflict then i'm willing to i'm willing to go there i won't back down if i'm provoked Um, (laughs) speaking of not backing down i think of you as constantly acting around an extraordinary company of actors in most projects you do really and i think of margin call specifically because of the number of great actors in it but i was wondering what the greatest learning experience for you as an actor that we have seen is Wow, these are good questions all. I think, um, I mean, I think Margin Call actually, that you, you you bring it up and I, and I think it was a seminal moment for me. It was the first movie I produced. So mm-hmm. not only was I, did I have the great good fortune of being in the company of those incredible people, um, some of who now are less incredible than they were then. Um, <gasps> more? No. <laughs> uh, she remains. She only gets better. Um, but not only did I have the opportunity to learn from watching them and working with them, but I also had the opportunity to put that thing together and make sure that you know mm-hmm. their flights were well, not personally, but you know, overseeing the idea that like everybody was where they needed to be and had what they needed, and there was this kind of. Um, 
that was a real um, trial by fire for me because mm-hmm. it, it, if if anything went wrong with any of those top notch folks, you know, I felt responsible and uh, in a way that I wouldn't if I was just showing up on set to do my part as an actor. So I would say I learned a great deal and I really cut my teeth as a producer in in that experience. Um, but by and large, I think the the most growth I've done as an actor tends to be on stage. Um, so my experience working with John Tiffany and Terry Jones, um, doing the glass menagerie, my experience, uh, doing angels in America with Michael Greif and Christian Borle, um, and, uh, and, and an incredible company of actors. I only mentioned Christian cause you saw little shop of horrors, but, um, you know, those, those experiences for me, there's something about working, um, in, in the theater. It's a slower process, right. But I, I liken it to kind of wind eroding stone you know over time and like showing up in the same place every night saying standing in the same spot saying the same thing there's a kind of depth that comes from that level of devotion and that level of surrender that i find the most transformative whereas with film and television you're really working you're working with instincts you're working to capture a moment that will live forever but it only existed for a brief fleeting second and there's its own kind of alchemy in that but for me, the kind of growth that I see that's lasting and uh, measurable, it, it happens more in those long form processes over time when I'm in rehearsal and on stage for a long time. Mm-hmm. If you find if I find myself acting on stage next to Cherry Jones, you better believe I'm acting my ass off. I will <laughs> never be more intimidated than being around that goddamn. You have no choice, you know? Right. She just won her she just won her third Emmy. God bless her. Uh, I think she um, wins Emmys on accident. She's like, whatever, I win again, you know. <laughs> I think she is though. I mean she's very she's she's a real um Cherry is such a She's really in it for the work. And uh, and I think whatever part of her it, it enjoys the winning is the part of her that knows that it means she gets to keep doing what she loves. But she would give those trophies away to, I mean, I think she did give her Emmy, her first Emmy for 24, like to the crew. I think she was like, here, you guys go. You can have my Emmy. I don't know if she asked for it back, but I know they had it for a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd I'd love that phone call from Cherry. Like, okay, I I, I need it back. <laughs> yes, yeah, <so> <laughs> uh, Lastly, I would guess that um, we were talking about how um, Martin unfortunately is no longer with us. But were there interesting stories that like you heard from him? One that stuck with you? Because all I, I know that like I was looking up the creation of Boys in the Band in general and. He wrote it while he was Natalie Woods' assistant, right. which just seems wild to me. Yeah. Yeah, he and Natalie Wood um, were uh, incredibly close um, for her whole life. And uh, Natalie's daughter, Natasha Gregson Wagner, uh, is Mark's goddaughter and was, you know, around and involved in the production of the play with him. And, um, you know, I, I just think. My favorite experiences of Mart were when Joe Mantello would organize this kind of Broadway, like let's meet at Sardi's on Thursday nights um, after the, after everybody's play. And so the second floor of Sardi's would be taken over by various companies from Broadway and just, you know, people that were around that would hear about it or get invited. And, and Mart would come to those and he would just sort of, he would find somebody usually in our cast who would see him and they would sort of, you know, start talking and then you'd see like a couple of other people trickle over and 
then they'd eventually find a booth and sit down and, and Mart would just kind of hold the quiet court. You know, he was not, a he was not an ostentatious man, but he was, um, he was incredibly uh, full of life. You know, he was sober. And, uh, and so I really enjoyed hearing him talk about, you know, he got sober to write boys in the band. I, I, my understanding is he didn't stay sober at that point, but then he, you know, got sober later for the majority of his life. And, I love talking to him about that, about, you know, because I'm also sober, we would talk about, you know, what that journey was and the challenges of living in the world that we live in and, uh, you know, the community that we live in and what it's like to have a perspective that's not influenced by substance. And yet, you know, this play is all about that, right? This play is all about the, the kind of shadow and the darkness that can be unleashed when uh, when people kind of um, get lost in their cups. And I feel like that was something that Mart had a really beautiful perspective on. And I really always appreciated talking to him about that. Um, and he'd spilled some tea about, you know, those people and talk about Howard Jeffrey and kind of what a tricky person he was and, you know, how, uh, you know, they would get into it sometimes and they would say horrible, horrible things to one another. And then they'd end it with like, you know, where are we going for lunch tomorrow? And, <laughs> and I think he really captures that in the journey of our Play, but that was one of my favorite things about, especially doing the movie, was kind of embodying that. Um, I love when I get to lose myself or get super stoned or super drunk or you know on stage because it's the only place it happens anymore. So um, I, I love doing that. I love doing that in the film, and I felt like I was kind of honoring some some aspect of all those people that the, the, this craving for something that they were just looking for in all the wrong places. And uh, yeah, but Mart Mart was a I mean, look, the fact that we got to stand behind him as he accepted his Tony Award for Best Revival is is the most indelible part of this whole experience. As, as enriching as it was and as exciting as it was and as much as I loved doing the work, you know, that night and that moment for him and the fact that he got to fully experience that, you know, um, was the coolest part of it all. And, uh, and it is sad that he's not here to see people um, experience the movie, but... Uh, but I, I know that he was excited about it and I know that he was really thrilled that we got to do it. So, uh, you know, we put it out into the world in his memory and with so much love and gratitude for him. He was a real force. You know, he should have gotten an Emmy for producing Heart to Heart, to be honest. He should have. It's God. true. Fantastic yeah. TV show. Absolutely. <laughs> Holds up, too. Yeah. With also Natalie Wood's um, first and third husband. Robert Wagner. Robert Wagner. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I know. You don't have to tell me about Heart to Heart. <laughs> uh, let's get you in a revival of Heart to Heart. I think I could. I think one. I could do it. Maybe I'll talk to Andrew Annals about it and see if he's see if he's up for it. <laughs> I would watch you and Andrew in a Heart to Heart revival. All right, so. we'll run it up the flagpole and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you for being here, Zach. It's good to see you again. It's always always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is keep it. Oof. Got a it's lot a of week. stuff to keep. No, it's been a it's been a week, and I will reiterate how fortunate I am that Kanye is 
temporarily so far away from when we record that I don't have to make him my keep it. <laughs> oh, that I'm is a so blessing. Yeah, that. see, it's the it's small a things. Yeah, he peed on he peed on that Grammy on a on a Wednesday, and for that I'm so grateful. I had to talk about it on. I was on ET Canada the next day. Oh, girl, really? How was that? It was fine. You know, I love the Can- <laughs> I love the Canadians. <laughs> uh, uh, my first brief keep it is to Crooked Media for scheduling John Favreau and Kendall Jenner's Instagram Live about voting because, like, she's reaching out to her millions of followers to like talk about voting, etc. But it is happening right now, and I cannot troll John in the Instagram because <laughs> it is like, during keep it. <laughs> it's not the fact that it happened. It's the actual scheduling issue that yes. you're mad about. Okay, I hear I you. I feel I like it you. was conveniently scheduled while we were recording to keep me out of the Instagram comments and I'm not happy. <laughs> and also I'm mad at John because he just followed me back on Twitter last week. Oh, wow. It's been a year, John Favreau. It's been a year of me being well, employed. And by the way, <laughs> welcome to the ride, John Favreau. Wow. Twitter's about to change for you. <laughs> Well, I mean, he tried to hit me with a car, Aida. I uh, know, so. right. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that too, that too. That's yeah. Okay. So, you win. You know who the last person, you know, Tommy, Mr. Number One Keep It fan of the three was the last one to follow me. Is that so? Mm. And it was, truly, it was truly like, it was truly like five months into Keep It. Oh, really? He followed me from the beginning and was like, you're my favorite <laughs> constantly? Is that weird? I don't know. <laughs> he, he DMs me every day yeah. with accolades. <laughs> we um, get it in the mood for love. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, so that was that. Was that all of Tier Keep It? I don't want to. I don't want to jump the gun. Like no, that was no. That week. was that was that was just that was just a pre Keep It. Oh, very good. You're okay. You're yeah. Okay. The, in the Keep It segment, like we're just keeping everything. Um, you know, yeah. but not Paul Rudd this week because the white the whites got mad. Mm. Oh yeah, they did get mad. Oh girl, my my DMs are a mess, a total mess. And then when I went back and listened to it, because sometimes you kind of forget the scathing way you're speaking when you're doing your keep it, and then you go back and listen, and you're like, I sound way harsher than I meant to, or I didn't preface it with a I love Paul Rudd, but so you know there is definitely a formula to keep it if you want to ward off the wild people in your in your DMs, and I did not do that with Paul Rudd, and I'd like to apologize. It's you know what? It's it, it, well. I'm glad you said that, but uh, <laughs> but also, but also, you know, I it's I just always find it funny with like when you drag everything under the sun, and then like sometimes you'll hit the one person where they're like, "Well, you can you can make fun of this, but don't make fun of Paul Rudd because I watch Clueless every night before bed." <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's just the one thing yeah. that uh that taps into people's brains where the comedy mm-hmm. has to stop the co- the comedy train doesn't come here anymore. No, right. Oh, very good. That's a deep Tennessee Williams reference, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say also. Uh, one time I did. Las Culturistas, they have a thing called I Don't Think So, Honey, where people just go up and do one-minute rants, like 50 comedians go up in a row. And you can do... Oh, so they're keep it. Yeah, okay, yeah. so they're keep Right, it. well <laughs> after ours, don't worry about it. Um, yeah. Uh, but they do this thing where you can pick a topic from a bowl and randomly come up with a monologue, but whatever they give you, and that's like the challenge of it, to like mm-hmm. fake anger at something. I just want to say, I did that once and had to talk about Chelsea Clinton. You would think I was actually very upset at Chelsea Clinton. And it's obvious, like what? Imagine like yeah. spending like a moment writing a screed about Chelsea Clinton but anyway so I'm I'm on your side there I had to drag Salma Hayek that same I don't think so honey because we were on that same live show oh right and I just went I went Dada S and I remember just <laughs> saying that she would never she would never be the movie Salma by Ava DuVernay <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> Selma, do, Selma, let's call the whole thing off. 
Yes. <laughs> um, I'll start. With, I'll start my keep it because it's going to be brief because it's not upsetting anything. I think everybody sort of agrees about this one. My keep it is to the movie Antebellum, which for some reason I watched over the weekend. Um, mm-hmm. And I say for some reason because I'm not horror oriented in any way, really. Um, so it's weird that I would watch it so soon after it came out. But first of all, I just want to say there's an awesome essay about how specifically black people are sick of these kinds of movies. Uh, Angelica Jade Bastian wrote about it over at Vulture. If you're not reading her about movies, I mean, you can cancel. Keep I it. cancel keep it right her. now and like just read her. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, it's this movie that stars Janelle Monet, and it begins with 40 minutes of what I will call just straight slave related torture. It's just it's it's unending. You're wondering what the point is. And then when you find out what the point is, because there's a contemporary Mobius strippy twist halfway through this movie, you are subject to the most boring sequence of events. And Janelle Monet, Monet being like a motivational speaker, activist, person who speaks only in the most boring, trite phrases about uh, racial justice. It makes no sense. And you're one at the end, eventually she's, She's reverted to what seems like antebellum times and she has to escape and there's some suspense to that. But it takes a long fucking time to get to that. And some of the characterizations in this movie, I root for Jenna Malone as a species. I want her to do well. (laughs) She goes very broad here. And while it's fun, it's one of those like, you're so broad, you're in your own movie. And I'm curious what that movie was because this one is way inappropriate for it. Anyway, <laughs> nobody needs to see this movie and I have to say a full keep it. And I, also, Janelle Monet, what what happened? What happened? You know, I am I am happy that the white person saw Antebellum because I was not I was not about to. It went over my radar. I well, I saw Angelica's review for one and then two, I was just like, I this isn't for me. Yeah, no. I, I get again. I've, I, I imagine me watching Antebellum be like, "Well, that was great." Imagine me sitting. Like, I want to tell my friends about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Clearly, it was for no one. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm. Um. Okay. So my keep it this week goes to kind of the same thing. Larger topic about computers, algorithms, and racist coding that is mm. kind of coming to the light in the past few weeks. I've had this recurring problem on Twitter where when I upload a photo and the app is left to decide which part of the photo is put in the tweet preview, it rarely highlights my own face. It Sometimes it'll highlight the wrong part of my face or the person on my shirt. But honestly, that's what I get for wearing Bjork on a shirt. I would have chosen her too. Oh. Um, <laughs> now, I, now, like, there's this recent tweet thread that's confirmed all my suspicions that something beyond me is going on. Um, a guy named Colin Midland posted a tweet thread showing how one of his fellow faculty members, a black man, was having trouble using the virtual background feature on Zoom because it would often cut his face out of the frame or it wouldn't match up with the virtual background. He then went to tweet screenshots of the photos, and even when the faculty member's face was present, Twitter opted to feature Colin Midland's photos, who is, you guessed it, a white man. And before you go like, oh, well, what about the lighting or what about? The-? No, it was a clearly it was a clear favor for the white man's face. It reminds me that code and the way code is written is just a manifestation of the coder's mind. And if that coder has racial biases, then the code will have racial biases. And judging that all the code is written down there in Silicracker Valley. OK, there's a high chance. There's a very, very high chance that not so savory programming is being written into new forms of intelligence. And these algorithms don't just struggle with identifying black faces as readily as white ones, 
But the more we rely on facial recognition as a type of technology in the future, the advent of it, it goes beyond social media. We see the same programs being used and being partial toward incriminating black faces in the justice system. And less than a month ago, we saw one of our first cases of someone being convicted and taken to jail using facial recognition. And then it came out to be that he was not the perpetrator of the crime. And it was, of course, a black man in Detroit. Mm -hmm. So this is just something for us to be wary of as facial recognition is, is, and again, I'd like to apologize for going on Patriot Act in my keep it, but it's a a lot lot of things are going on. Um, Spirit of Hassan Minaj calling me. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's my keep it. My keep it is to racist software and racist programming. And honestly, Twitter did just acknowledge that there's an issue and then they're going to look into it immediately. Oh, interesting. So, so yeah. that means they will not look into it. <laughs> they, yeah. they were lying and so, you should shut up. So, yeah. Still yeah. waiting on them to look into those Nazis. But right. <laughs> on the, uh, the bifocals. <laughs> that reminds me of sort of what I was talking about last week when like my keep it was to the social dilemma, right? You know, it had these yeah. white people, you know, like who had worked at like Twitter, or Facebook, Pinterest, etc. talking about how like they had no idea that like social media could be used for nefarious purposes, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like like, well, you have to think about the fact that you, as white men, largely white men who were also in this documentary, you know, like mm-hmm. creating this code and creating these companies, like you have biases that other people can sort of take advantage of, you know, like that's why you should have like not just white men on your team, you know, because <laughs> yeah. other people will see these happening. Also, how far behind am I that that was the first time I've ever heard Scylla Cracker Valley? Am I just way behind? Oh. <laughs> uh, I think I'm coining okay. it, to be, to be totally honest, I'm, unless I'm wrong. No, I'm glad to be here for it. I've just, I, I'm there upset at myself for maybe that being my first exposure. Scylla <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cracker Valley is it. <laughs> I sat with it for a while. I was like, can I say Cracker on the podcast? <laughs> but here we go. And are. it also so. sounds like Silly Cracker, which also works out too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you might get DMs from people who really love Ritz crackers this week. How dare you? Um, everybody knows I'm wheat thin hive. We don't have to go there, but all right. Oh my goodness. A Trisket bitch. Oh no. Who was a Trisket bitch? Yuck. Oh, Yuck. Honey, they're an old broom. Yeah. Mm. Uh, my keep it this week is to Ellen DeGeneres, um, DeGeneres queen herself, uh, who did an apology on her show this last week for um, everything that we've talked about on the show recently, you know, the um, allegations of misconduct on her show and, um, you know, the producers that had to be fired for, um, you know, preying on people who worked on the show, you know, um, sexually harassing people, um, and also just the general air of um, toxicity that seemed to exist at the Ellen show. I don't know if y'all saw this apology, but it was... Whack? I saw her say something. <laughs> I saw her say some words. <laughs> string some words together. It, I knew that the apology was going to be like this because if you recall, every time Ellen has had to apologize for something before, it has always sounded so disingenuous. Mm-hmm. Like re- the, when she was first dragged about hanging out with George Bush, the war criminal, uh, she started her apology by being like, listen, I'm friends with a lot of people across the aisle and like, ooh, I guess there was an uproar about like me being at a game this weekend, you know? Like every time like something happens with Ellen and she did it with this apology too where she's like, how's everybody's summer, you know? Mine was pretty great, huh? Super terrific. Like she always starts out the apology by like 
acknowledging what happened in a way that it seems like, ugh, can't believe this happened, you know? Yeah, and also don't start it with a joke. I don't know. It's like the situation yeah. is serious enough that it demanded greater specificity. Like, as I was sitting there watching it, my problem was, I mean, I've now discussed it on this podcast a number of times, or I've discussed it with my friends a number of times. I was struggling to remember what had occurred. You know, like, yeah. like, like as she was sitting there, like, what are you apologetic before? Like, there are layers of things going on here. And and by the way, again, she did point this out. There's a world of difference between Ellen is not as nice as she seems on the show, which, by the way, who cares? Yeah. And yeah. and secondly, <laughs> there's a culture of horror, I guess, or of, of, of contemptible mm -hmm. behavior occurring on the show. And I just wish she had been specific about that and how those kinds of things occur because that really affected people. It, it has nothing to do with just, oh, Ellen, you looked at me wrong one time, you know? Mm. Yeah, you don't get to respond to accusations of sexism and racism and workplace hostility with, I'm so sorry, I'm me still warning. Like, you don't get to do that, <laughs> Ellen. Well, also, opening up her apology with, like, you know, if anybody's thinking of changing their title or giving yourself a nickname, don't go with the kind lady. It's like, you've literally just undercut everything that you're about yeah. to say by how you open your apology. And it's, mm -hmm. it's just so... It's so rude and dismissive, to be honest. You know, it reminds me of the George Bush thing. It reminds me of how she was so rude and dismissive of people who had astute criticisms of Kevin Hart, you know, um, for his homophobia. And um, she was conflating them with people just sort of like being mean to him online, right? And I think, unfortunately, this is a thing that will always be a problem with tackling situations when it comes to Ellen, right? Because she has branded herself as this sort of like nice person, you know, like be kind to everyone else, you know? And um, in her mind, you know, like she always conflates criticisms of herself or people in her orbit with people, you know, are just sort of like being mean. Right. And there's a difference, yes, between like, you can be a bitch, Ellen, to be honest, you know, like you could be, a, I don't care if you're a bitch um, behind the scenes, you know, like when people were talking about how like, uh, oh, uh, the security guard once was like, like she wasn't making eye contact with me, you know, or she was like sort of dismissive and rude. I'm like, she can do that. Yeah. You know, as long as she's treating people like with respect at work, she doesn't have to be your friend, you know, mm -hmm. and she really doesn't have to be a friend to people like who like come up to her on the street. You know, whenever someone's like, oh, the celebrity was mean to me, uh, like I went up and asked them for like a photo. And it's like, they, they can be mean to you. Get out of their face. <laughs> yeah. You know, but there is a marked difference here. And, and she doesn't really get that. And I also found it so um, exploitative for her to talk about how she first started saying, like, be kind to people uh, because it came in the wake of um, Tyler Clemente's um, suicide. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a gay teen who took his life because of bullying. And um, you fostering a workplace um, that is creating trauma for um, people of color and for other queer people and allowing... Um, predators to just sort of like run rampant at your workplace has nothing to do with this fucking kid who took his life okay like and you trying to be like i am a nice person and i'm trying to foster kindness because i'm really torn up about um this kid who took his own life it's like it's like that has nothing to do with what was going on in your workplace and the fact that you would try to exploit that um and sort of like 
give yourself like sympathy is it, I found it offensive. Yeah, it's I mean Ellen had didn't have the advantage because I don't think any of us wanted to hear an apology from her. We wanted her show to stop being on the air. So just from that at the beginning she was doomed and it, that's what made it one of the least satisfactory apologies that I think I've heard in a long long time. Um unfortunately I've heard way too many first-hand accounts of my friends who worked at the Ellen show talk about their own personal issues at the show for her to ever have been able to redeem herself. So I'm sorry, Ellen. There's just no walking this back. Yeah, you know, and, and it's unfortunate, too, that we just sort of, like, ascribe, you know, this, like, cult of personality, I guess, to people, you mm-hmm. know, like, especially someone like Ellen, you know, like this, this, this quote-unquote niceness um, that she's been allowed to exploit, you know, and, like, you don't have to be nice, you don't have to be kind, uh, just like don't let racism and like sexual harassment happen at your workplace, girl. Sixty-two years old, talking about I'm a work in progress. Right. I mean, I have never seen a play like a play get good in the third act. Like if you don't see the first <laughs> down, ass down. Like, what? Uh, I recommend witness for the, the prosecution for Christie's best. Ellen, Ellen. Yeah. Well, that's our show. Thank you to um, David Chang and Zachary Quinto for joining us this week. We will see you next week. Keep It is a production of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Our digital team is Nadine Melkonian and Milo Kent. Thank you to Brian Sebel for production support every week. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador.